Welcome to the Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Words, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work. How being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Happiness Podcast, I'll be speaking with people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who have had career changes to entrepreneurs who have forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. I'm Lisa Smazarski, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. Welcome. Lisa, you've been incredibly successful at launching Stylist magazine, just over 10 years old now. Uh, millions of people visiting your magazine. And, you know, to go on that journey, we've obviously become bigger than that. But to start, I mean, we really were 12 people in one room going, will this work? Will this work? And, you know, everyone was so dedicated and put so much into it. Yeah. And it's such an interesting journey. I loved being part of that. And when you look back, do you sort of relish that time when you were small and started? Oh, I loved it, yeah. Absolutely do you relish it more it. than now you're kind of big and... It will be always be very special, actually, I have to say. Because I think when we were the 12 people in one tiny room and we used to joke that someone sat in the bin. I mean, it was that small. It's like, who gets the bin chair today? But it was really tiny and we were all hands on deck. I mean, we had no IT, no HR support. Um, it was a completely unique experience. And also we were creating something from scratch. We didn't know how it would be received, how... Um, how the journey would go, I suppose. And it was just incredible. So I think, for me, that will always be a really proud, special time. I mean, we worked so hard. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, for me, it was 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. days for about six months of getting that up and running. I didn't mind. I was really happy to do that. I believed in it so much. Um, and we got such a good response when we launched that I, you know, I just, it was addictive, actually. It was really addictive. And the more we did, the more we wanted to do. I got tired yeah. after six months, I'll be honest. <laughs> and what, did, what did you do? Did you go away for a holiday? Um, I think I did. I actually, I actually got pregnant. <laughs> That's what happened. I thought I have a relaxing time to start a family now. Um, because I'd got married just before we launched. So what, what happened then in terms of pregnancy and children and absolutely full on? How did you juggle all of that? Um, it was interesting because I was the first person to take maternity leave, a return from maternity leave in the, in the company. So really it was about carving out a way that we would work, creating a culture as well. I had an incredibly supportive CEO and um, editorial director at the time who allowed me to work a four-day week and to try and find some flexibility within that. But it was really hard. I mean, actually, the first off, I was terrified of leaving the job. I, you know, I'd created this amazing thing and I was really worried about taking time out mm. at a time when things were really on the up as well. It felt inconvenient, seems like the wrong word, because I was really happy about starting a family. But it didn't feel like a good time in my career. 
actually it was fine. I came back and had an even better year for my maternity leave, which is a story I'd like to tell because I think actually we do, we are all terrified as women who are working very hard that we will be derailed in our careers. And actually I've been allowed to thrive and have a family, but it is hard. I mean, it's really very hard and trying to balance how much time with... What do you think makes a great journalist and a great <coughs> editor? Um, a great journalist for me, um, natural curiosity. I think that's just something we all actually and editors we all have to have because we are creating content all the time, which is often born out of our own desire to find an answer to something. And that's whether, you know, that can be from an investigative journalist who wants to uncover something and find out the truth. But it could be from a lifestyle feature where you just I really want to understand what's happening here. So I think, you know, ability to ask questions and be comfortable with people and to sort of demonstrate that na natural curiosity. I think that's an absolute essential um, tenacity. You know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of no's on the journey when you're trying to get a story or you're trying to write things. So you have to be prepared to go, right, OK, plan B, plan C, plan D, I'm still going. So finding um, new routes. Um, and I think a competitive spirit as well, actually, because I think, again, as a journalist, you have to want to do it first. You have to want to do it better. You want to have to find your own unique angle. Um, and I think usually the trait that I've seen in those people who do that best is this real desire to to be the best actually at, at what they do. So I, th I think that's important. And then as you become an editor, it's certainly about listening, listening all the time. I mean, I, I feel a little bit like a cod psychologist sometimes where I'm trying to understand my audience. So I think the greatest compliment, I guess, is that you knew what was happening inside my mind and I hadn't even told anyone. But that's just by listening to conversations. I mean, I listen to people in public all the time. So be warned, if you're ever in an area, I'll listen to people's conversations, try and have a peek at what they're reading or what they're messaging to understand behaviour. But I think that's true with my team as well. So actually, everyone's got great ideas. And learning to not bulldoze with your own thoughts and ideas is... Um, Quite important I think actually so giving everyone the opportunity and I guess in you know certainly in your area the more we learn about introverts and extroverts and how people need to share those ideas mm. I think a great editor will be able to take those so you're probably Britain's greatest eavesdropper I'm yeah nosy like I said <laughs> just really really nosy it's a, take it as a compliment I'm interested <laughs>
I think I like to think that we, we do, and if anybody's got a problem, we're there to help, but we're not, we haven't got any formal structures in place to deal with that kind of thing. So I'd probably put a seven, just out of being nice people, the company cares for me, but there's nothing in place that, you know, we haven't got the luxuries of a HR department or anything like that that might be able to help. So for me, it's probably a seven. Yeah, I'm probably going to go less than that, because I think that that is probably an area, like I said, that we don't focus on. And interesting enough, again, I know we spoke to someone today who, um, you know, we talk about healthcare and uh, all, if you look at all the apps or all the kind of uh, sort of booming ones in tech, it was all about getting a car on demand, whether it's Uber, getting food on demand, which is like delivery or whatever it is. But healthcare was the last one to be on demand. And that's because for some reason, the last thing we're caring about is our health. Because mm. why are we thinking about it? We think we're all going to be okay. And in fact, when it then suddenly hits you, you're like, oh God, I'm not okay. Mm. Whether that's you're being whatever you're feeling. Uh, so I'm going to probably go for a five on that one. And, and on, on that, is there a sort of sense that you have in driving to get there and doing all that you've achieved and the, tr uh, the strains over money and whatever, that there just isn't the chance to stop and think about the well-being of your team and how everybody is and making sure that they're on board? I mean, is that the sense that in the early days of setting something up, it's just frenetic? Yeah, I think it probably was true for us in the, in the very early days. I think now we're, we're starting to, as we've got more people and uh, more structure, those things you start to reflect on a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I like to think right now we, we do put an element of thought into how people are feeling and, and how people are coping. And, you know, we do a lot more reviews and that type of thing to see if people are on track, but it could probably be better. Okay. So, next question. Do you rarely feel depressed or anxious at work? So 10 means I rarely feel it. Yep. Depends, you rarely feel it? Uh, I say, yeah, I say I'm fairly good at splitting my sort of home life and work life and all that kind of stuff and not getting too stressed out about certain situations. So I'd say, I change my, I'm actually going to put that as an, an 8. Because I do feel... Sometimes anxious. You do? Yeah. You tell me, man, that's right. <laughs> uh, I work in television, so I'm constantly depressed and anxious. Um, never getting jobs. It's depressing. Um, I think that I think that mental health, um, I think we're gonna have a real scare as a as a country and as a community about how horrendous mental health is gonna get. I think it's a lava going through cities and villages and towns around the country because of the pressures of life and the lack of security that we have and all these different things and um, I think it's going to be a huge issue um, but uh, I think everyone has their own situations going on you know and it's just about managing them so I suppose are you able to manage them yeah I think I am so I'd probably go with a eight and how do you manage stress what do you do when you're feeling uh, I think it's routine. Anxious. I think it's routine. Um, I think that your your day is separated into three stages. You have your morning, you have your day, and then you have your evening. And I think in the morning, if you... if you, I've always told this thing, make your bed in the morning. And that's what you should always do, because your bed is the... You know, if you start making your bed in the morning, it sets your day up well, and it's so true. So I started doing that, and before I go to work, I go to the gym. And having that kind of, you know, as kids we were running around all day long playing football and then suddenly we get to 24 years old and we stop that. Because, you know, that's a shock to our system. So I think for me to manage stress and that kind of side of things, um, and because I'm a very kind of, you know, sort of a highly strong person, it's about 
having a bit of a routine and going and working out and exercising. And then in the evening, you know, seeing friends or whatever it is, you know, I think being in a community is key and friends are like gardens, you have to water them to make them grow. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to have that going on. And do you recognise in each other when you're feeling stressed? You cover it up well then. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, maybe I cover it up. I don't know, I think that we can both know the, the sort of, the types of situations and, and topics that probably put us under stress. Um, and I think we're quite good at dealing with things as soon as they happen. I, I think for me, the, the biggest coping mechanism is dealing with whatever the, the source of the stress might be. So rather than, you know, if we've got an issue with a cash flow, for example, we'll call an instant meeting and talk about it there and then and, and come up with a solution and probably not leave the room until we've got one. You know, you kind of attack that, that source of stress and hopefully cancel it out. Okay. So, uh, next question. Hi, I'm Lizelle, and I'm the founder of Lizelle Wellbeing. I got into health and beauty, really, I suppose, through plants, because my father was a great plantsman, you know, when he was away at sea a lot. And when Ten on that. Gosh, you're scoring highly. Um, do you feel trusted? To make well, it? trust is a key word for me. It yeah, Tr I mean, I, I put trust on the front of my magazine, trusted. And it's, a, it's such a precious thing, trust. Trust is like that golden globe that you hold and, and treasure. And so, yes, I would hope that everybody around me would trust me to make wise decisions, um, you know, to look after them, to look after their well-being at work, to look after them financially, to make sure that the space that we're all working in is, is good and that the decisions I make about the brand going forward are, are the right ones. And has there been any point in your business career when you haven't felt trusted? No, actually. When I started my the beauty company, for example, with my business partner, we trusted each other to do the right thing by each other. We didn't have a shareholders agreement. We didn't have any documentation at all. So we just said, well, I will do that. And we kind of looked each other in the eye and we knew that we could trust each other. So that was actually quite an interesting point. When we came to sell the brand, all the lawyers were doing all the due diligence and all the data room and all that kind of stuff. And they were saying, well, where are your documents? And we said, we don't have any. <laughs> they said, no, 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 your documents, you know, like your shareholders agreement. I said, we don't have any. And actually, that was a really bad time, if, you know, if I have to identify a bad time in business, because then we had to sit down with the lawyers and create documents which aren't built on trust. Because the whole point of those agreements are, if and when you fall out, what does it say in the contract? Mm. You know, so how do you resolve it? What's your conflict resolution? Who is going to have the final say? You know, how do you arbitrate this? It's like the old-fashioned brands, the Quaker brands. If you look at, you know, why all of those Quaker brands, you know, Cadbury's and Kellogg's and, you know, Bourneville and all of those did so well because people knew they could trust them. Yeah. They knew that if they shook hands with a Quaker on a deal... That was it, they could walk away and forget about it because they weren't going to rip them off or, or try and wheedle out of something. Okay, so you score high on that. I am Lucy Cavendish and I am now a psychotherapist. And I see individuals and couples and I see a lot of teenagers, um, which I really enjoy. And I am writing a book about bringing up teenagers for parents uh, as if I know the answer to that, which I don't, but I'm trying to help people. And I also do courses for adults, actually, um, to help them with their teens. That's the main thing that's really come up. Is and, and before that, you were a writer? 
for that. Yes, I was a writer and I still, I still do some writing, but I was a journalist, yeah, in the national newspapers and I had a column and I interviewed lots of celebrities, loads and loads of celebrities. And I travelled around the world and I used to live in New York and then I used to go every week to LA and you are pushed meet and pushed Hollywood and pushed. Future. And the rates are slashed. So you're, and, and, and I had this identity of myself as I am a journalist, this is what I do. And my, actually I'd wake up and I'd, you know, and I'd be touting around for work because I was freelance. I'd be saying to the man I'm now married to but wasn't married to then, you know, I, should I do this, should I do that? I, every time I asked to come out I thought I was going to be ill. I was terrified my kids were going to read anything I wrote. The column, I started thinking I can't write that anymore because I felt it was very exposing for my kids. And while they were little and it was funny, that was fine, but things were changing. And in the end, uh, my husband and I had gone to the Hebrides on a holiday that went horribly, horribly wrong, but never mind. Um, and I thought, why am I even with this man? But the one thing he did that was good, uh, when I was sort of crying and wailing, so I can't carry on being a journalist, he looked up from his newspaper and said, well, you know, why don't you just do something else then? And the idea that I could do something else, like, it never occurred to me, which makes me sound really stupid. But I'd done it for so long. My identity was so caught up with being a journalist and being successful and being well-connected and clacking about in high heels and going to parties and going into a room and knowing everyone, which was fun. It was fun. But I, you know, I, I couldn't see that I could go to something else. So after that, what did you do? Well, I said to him, what do you think I should do then? And he said, well, people like you, you like people, you're good at listening, you're really damaged, so, you know, you've got lots of experience in damaged, wounded people. Why don't you train to be a counsellor? I think you'd be brilliant. Um, and I thought, okay. And so I went on the internet and there was a course and I could only do Thursday days because of the kids and pick up some of that stuff. And there was a course at the Mary Ward Centre in London that happened to be on Thursdays, and so I applied for it. And you did six weeks. It was just an introduction to counselling. I went along and I did my six weeks, and I thought, oh, you know, this is great. Um, and, and then did so you then continue you, writing through that? I did. Yeah, I did, actually. Um, that caused a few problems because people on the course were very concerned that I would write about them. I had told everybody that I wouldn't do that and I never ever ever have and I never ever ever will because that was their, you know, they, 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 it was confidential, mm. you know, a lot of stuff went on. But I don't think I was ever really accepted in the group, that may also be for other reasons, but I think it was difficult for people. I just couldn't see myself, I suppose, as they saw me. So they would pick up a newspaper and I'd have written something in it and some people were very impressed and some people thought I was a sort of ghastly, awful, shouty human being in the newspapers. Um, but I carried on writing. I did that. I then did another year. Then I decided to apply to do my diploma, advanced diploma. Um, and gradually over the next three years of training, I started cutting down on writing. Um, and I stopped doing my column. And then... One day I said, okay, that's it, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to set up private practice. And I had one client who didn't know she was my only client. I'm not going to say who she is. <laughs> um, 
and she found me and I did say to her, I've, I've only just qualified and she is American and she said, I don't care, I think you sound great. <laughs> so I said, okay, um, and, I, and I was earning virtually no money um, and she was my first client and she's still my client. And gradually people emerged. Hello. Uh, today I'm talking to uh, Paul Dreschler, who has had a phenomenally successful business career as a CEO and as a chairman, uh, and is also president of the CBI. Uh, Paul, uh, welcome to the podcast here at WeWorks in Devonshire Square, uh, in where you are well ahead of the average. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? I do, absolutely. Uh, was there ever a, so you attend? The reward, you know, the, the OD, it's only the business role, everything else is, is pro bono. And, you know, what's the reward? A million children whose lives are changed in school? Can you pay me more than that? Or uh, influencing business conditions and, and government policy, be it in CBI or London First? That's, that's a great reward. And was there ever a time in your career where you didn't feel appropriately rewarded? So I graduated with an engineering degree thanks to my parents and school and other things. So I got off to a good start, and I think, to be honest, I was always ahead of the game. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have said I was a bandit, but I was, you know, I mean, I think when you marry your first children, you know, you, you know, and you, that big mortgage, you know, in those days, you'd like take out the biggest mortgage you can and, you know, it was like three, three or three and a half times salary, and people thought it was outrageous. And now they're borrowing, I don't know, seven or eight times. Insane. So, you know, there were times when, you know, I, I, I might have had to say we, we might spend a bit less. But no, I can't. Okay. Do you feel recognized when you do something well? You know, I do. I, I mean, I understand exactly what that question is. I think the more senior you are, the less often you're recognized, but it's such a huge treat when it happens. And I always say to people, never underestimate the value of a couple of nice words to someone. And the more senior they are, the more impact it will have, because it doesn't happen very often. But I do, you know, do I feel recognized? Uh, uh, you, know, you know, I do, actually. I'm just... Would but you... I, I'm probably, you know, it's, it's an important, you know, I think recognition is important. Could be recognition of others is important, but recognition of self. I mean, I want to make a difference. I want to have impact. You know, I want people who work with me to to have fun and enjoy it and feel they're succeeding. And do you know, on average, how often people are thanked for doing the job well? About zero 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 point zero 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 one percent of what there should be, Mark. It is, it is the most underutilized reward mechanism in this country. Uh, so on, on average, people are thanked once every four and a half months. But shocking, isn't it? But how mad is it? You know how mad is it when it is? You know it's it's a free resource saying thank you. You know there's not a limit to the stock. And all the research says that people value that more than pay. Yeah, no, I, in I, terms I, I, of I, I, engagement. I, I I mean I certainly think you've got to pay them enough to, to live. But the power, you know, it's even you know when you're out in a restaurant. Does it hurt a lot to be nice to the waiter waitress to say, oh, thank you, or, or please tell the chef that was the best dinner I've had this evening or this week? Or this? It's all easy. 
you know. Now, I, look, okay. I, so, and by the way, if we want the world to be a better place, we want to be happier. That's the best fuel available to do it, in my view. So what are you going to give yourself then? Do you feel... I'm going to give it a nine because I could always have a bit more. I'm Lucy Kellaway and I'm a newly qualified teacher. I teach at a school in Hackney and I teach economics and business studies. And Lucy, before that, you were obviously a world-famous journalist. I don't know about world-famous. I was on the FT for 32 years, and for the last 20 of those, I was a columnist, mainly sort of making fun of managers, really, was what I specialised in. Very good. And um, so what decided you, after all that time, to leave journalism, where uh, you were incredibly good, to go to the world of teaching? It was just too long. I mean, 32 years with the same employer, it's too long. And also, you know, when I started out, I had this feeling that our careers may be ended at about 60. But as I got closer and closer to that thing myself, I didn't feel anywhere near ready to stop working. I mean, quite apart from what the sort of financial implications of that would be. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to live for so long. I mean, my father had recently died aged 90. And he wasn't even in that great health. And, you know, I'm sort of rather expecting to live till I'm 100. So I feel I've got masses of time left. And I started to feel quite sort of evangelical about why on earth was it too late for me to learn to do something completely different. And why teaching? Well, I suppose there were a couple of things. First of all, um, my mum was a brilliant teacher. And I probably spent the first 30 years of my working life trying to be very unlike my mum. And then uh, the pull of mum was sort of bringing, bringing me back. But more immediately was my daughter, who had joined Teach First. And I realised in talking to her, really in the first term of her working life, that she was being more useful than I had sort of been in, you know, 30 years, really, re helping these kids in very difficult schools. And I thought, if my mum can do it and my daughter can do it, maybe I can do it too. And so how was going back to school to qualify to be a teacher? Oh, it was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it was miles, miles hard. I mean, everyone says, oh, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And I knew that intellectually, but that's very, very different to actually doing it. Um, so how long did it take to qualify? Oh, so the training, the initial training is a year. So I started September before last and I qualified in, in July. Uh, I'm now a newly qualified teacher, so I have sort of my training wheels on um, this year, uh, and then we'll be and we'll be fully qualified after that. So, what was it like leaving a job where you were well established, uh, you had the t-shirts and the video, uh, to go to train to be a teacher, to not be paid? I assume during that. Uh -uh. Period? No, no, you're very out of date. Um, the country is so desperate for teachers. Um, that, that trainee teachers are paid and so I was doing on-the-job training so I was getting a bit over 20 grand a year which was far less than I had been getting before. Um, I think though in answer to your question of what was it like it was in part just thrilling and amazing because to learn to start all over again you know it was the most fabulous midlife crisis to have to feel that you know my late 50s I could be as if I was 22, learning something all over again. But it's easier in your late 50s than in your 20s because you know who you are, you're already quite confident. You know, there are things that make it easier. As far as sort of shedding 
uh, the sort of trappings of the FT, that was fine. I mean, I cycled past the FT building, I feel no regret at all. So that was easy. What, the thing that isn't easy is being very bad at something. And I was shockingly bad at the beginning, as practically everyone is. And I did find that quite hard, but I'm getting better, so it's I'm here in central London, in Berkeley Square, on a lovely uh, summer's day, speaking to the wonderful Baroness Martha Lane Fox. Martha, welcome. It's lovely to be talking to you. Thank you. Um, can you map out for us your working life? So we all know about 1998 and lastminute.com, uh, but if we start a bit before that, how did work start for you? Uh, work started for me when I decided, aged about 15, that I wanted to start a dating agency at school. So I, Any ulterior motive? Absolutely none at all. <laughs> Basically, I wanted to know what everybody's preferences on dating was. Uh, it didn't go very well, unsurprisingly. Then took a somewhat... Uh, world feel embracing of you? <laughs> Not exactly. Um, I worked in South Korea for Mitsubishi on a project for quite some time. And uh, when we gave a final presentation, my boss very kindly asked me to come up to present to the big boss of Samsung, which was quite a big deal, huge, enormous company, as you know, in South Korea, massively, uh, kind of like an institution there, I guess, half a lot of the economy. And so this guy was there, and... It was a bank of men, kind of in descending order of importance alongside him. A huge, enormous room, me and my boss and the rest of our team on the other side of the room. And when I spoke, which I was allowed to say one thing in the presentation, they all clapped. No one else got a clap. And they went, ah, Tinkerbell, she speaks, she speaks. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God. So I've been working in this company for six months in the basement. And it was, I had no idea that that's why they were seeing me. Anyway, uh, it didn't get much better in the early days of lastminute.com. I was in the first and only meeting from a venture capitalist that Brent and I managed to secure because nobody was interested in our business. And we practiced every single question you could possibly imagine. Commissions on airline tickets, marketing spend, customer, you know, everything. The one question that they asked us, they asked to Brent, not to me, I'll just wait for this truck to go by. It was, what happens if she gets pregnant? So, and what did you say or well, he said? Do you say? know what? I wish I could remember what I said. He, good on him, didn't say anything and looked at me. And I think I said, well, I guess I'd have a baby. But I can't remember exactly. I wish I'd written it down. Anyway, it's, as you know, Mark, and a source of extreme, uh, not depression, that's the wrong word, but just I, I'm vexed by how we have ended up with what should have been one of the most diverse and rich sectors imaginable being controlled, run, owned, and monopolised by a very, very small handful of people that look the same. And why, why do you think that is? I think that um, what changed between 98 and now 2018, 1920, was, you know, when we started that business, it felt as though commerce was going to drive the web, that it was going to be individual, small retailers emerging, perhaps, you know, little businesses like ours, yes, wanting scale, not trying to be small in ambition, but enabling um, other people to have a, a voice in a distribution network on a global scale, but fueled mainly by commerce and transactions. Then, boom, platform businesses happened. And then all the businesses sort of changed in pace and scale. And those businesses came from much more of a kind of deep engineering culture than perhaps some of the early commerce businesses that have been led by the sector, if you like. And 
it's a bit of a clunky explanation, but I do think the fact that now Facebook and Google and, you know, arguably the Chinese similar businesses have such a grip of the internet is because they came from a different starting point and, and it's been very, very hard to fight back from that because they own now all of the distribution on the internet. So do you feel depressed now? I do, about yes. where it's all I got do. to? I really do because as we've seen again and again and again, this is about power, money and equality as well as having a rich and vibrant and thriving, you know, society which is what the internet has now become and it's not just that all the rich jobs I mean sorry all the jobs that are paid well go to men because inherently coding jobs and jobs on tech skills are better paid and we have massive by the way gaps in those jobs We've got 600,000 empty jobs in the UK right now but it's also in, in, tech. in tech but it's also that the power lies with such a small number of people and therefore they're not making very good decisions I think I'm on the board of Twitter, and I think Jack himself would say, and he's one of the good guys, that the reason that all this hideous, horrible trolling and abuse started on Twitter is because it was four white guys who built that original platform. They'd never been shouted at in the street. They'd never walked home in the dark feeling a bit nervous, as every single woman on the planet has experienced. And I just think you wouldn't design for the same set of issues and things that you felt. So it really, really matters to have a diverse perspective of people building what is essentially our future. Delighted today to be talking to Nahala Summers, uh, who's had a most incredible journey from a corporate life uh, to now fully focused uh, on a charity. Uh, Nahala, you're, you're very, very welcome. Uh, would you just like to start by saying a little about your story, so a little about your corporate life and then your journey to form the amazing charity that you've started? Yes, yeah, so I you imagine it becoming almost corporate, going back to that world that you left seven years ago it's such a I started Sunshine People because I wanted to prove to people that the power of kindness was more important than money and I have had a battle over the last six months about bringing money into it but what I've realized is that I need to to do the work within the schools and the workplaces and really drive that kindness approach I can't see myself being in that typical corporate position with Sunshine People because one of the things that I am absolutely passionate about is that as a charity, you can't lose the direction that you're in and, and the values that you started with. So whatever, the, because sometimes charities get so big that they forget the reason why they started in the first place and all those really important values. Um, so I don't think it will ever be that for Sunshine People because the value of kindness will always stay at the very heart of it. Hi, I'm William Sitwell. I'm a food writer, broadcaster, and uh, I am the restaurant critic for the Daily Telegraph. Morning, William. Now, William, you're going to take the Engaging Workplace Happiness Survey. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? Uh, <laughs> you have to score it 0 to 10. 10 being you feel remarkably well rewarded. Yeah, for well, the thing is, because I'm now sort of freelance, it's sort of quite complicated because my work is so disparate in different places. But, I mean, for example, for my work for the Telegraph, I feel very well rewarded. So if you put, I'll put a 10 on that one. Okay. Right? I mean, I don't feel that anyone is sort of hamstringing me. And taking me for a ride. Okay. Uh, okay. So recently, 
you were in the news, big headlines, yeah. about what's now called Vegan Gate, mm -hmm. uh, where a private email you sent to uh, a vegan activist was released. Um, and um, as a consequence of that, you stepped down after 20 years of uh, editing the Waitrose magazine. So in terms of your uh, stress and your well-being, uh, how, how did that feel? You said earlier that you were this kind of really relaxed individual that threw stones and didn't really worry about reports. How, how did that feel? Did you feel supported? Um, it's very strange because it was a sort of extraordinary whirlwind and it's very odd to find yourself in the centre of what actually became a kind of global media storm. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people read about this news globally. The way that I operated in my office was we had a lot of fun. This is what we did day in, day out. Now, I did a lot of other things as well. But when I was in the office, it was a lively place. There was a lot of banter. However, you know, if that word is derogated, now I don't know. But we joked. We had fun. You know, if there was a dustbin, I'd try and see if we could get our art director into it. Mm -hmm. We had a an amusing time in the office. Mm -hmm. And I was always taking the mickey out of people. And then one day you got a pitch and then what from happens a vegan is writer. I made the mistake of the office banter around me happening on my phone to a stranger. So this girl pitches me on my Hotmail a series about plant-based meals, which sort of, you know, the reality is, really? I mean, do you not read the magazine? We do this stuff all the time. So I sort of corresponded with her and sent some flippant response to her. And I think actually the reality is she was quite annoyed that I shut down the, the conversation and went to sort of eat some cake or something. something. Some cake was needed to be tested in the kitchen or, I don't know, maybe there's a new dustbin I needed to get the uh, our director of photography into. So she leaked the email trail to BuzzFeed and actually it was during half term and I was sitting down in Somerset, just written my um, Christmas welcome editor's letter to the reader. It was about the, would have been about the 15th one I'd done to them. Mm. And uh, my phone shimmered and it was someone from the Waitress Press Office saying, did you send that email to that journalist? And I went, what email to who? I forgot about it. Anyway, she sent the screen grab that BuzzFeed had got hold of. Mm. And I went, oh yeah, that looks familiar. And anyway, then I cut a long story short, all hell is broken loose. Um, Waitrose get inundated with complaints. Mm. There's a social media storm, and I quit. Partly diffused the row. So the question is, how did I feel? Without sounding too sort of horribly flippant, it was quite exciting. It was stressful, but I was never worried. I was with my wife, my young child, Actually, my two teenage just kids. Born. Yeah, he was about ten days old. Mm. My two teenage kids were with me, mm. so I felt loved and supported where I was. Mm. Because I'd just been rude and immature, I didn't really worry. Mm. This wasn't a case of abuse, mm. anti-Semitism, um, sexism. You know, I'd been rude to a vegan. They're not a religious group. Some of them would like to think they are. Some of them, some of them would like to think they have sort of, they should have a religious protected status, but they're not. So I just pissed off a bunch of vegans. 
um, but there were consequences, as we then discovered. So I never felt alone, and also I was very supported by my CEO. Mm. And when we had a kind of... Andrew Hirsch. Andrew Hirsch. And yeah. we had a very sort of crunch conversation. He'd woken up in Toronto on business. He'd switched on his phone. And on BBC Worldwide, he said, there's three stories today. There's Yemen, Pakistan, and you. And this was in Toronto at, mm. at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. Mm. So I said, look, there's three things for me. One is Waitrose need to re repair and move on with their reputation. Mm. John Brown mustn't be affected by this. And I don't want our friendship to be affected. Mm. So I resigned. So I felt supported by him, supported yeah. by my family. The media supported me. I was just hated by about 350 million vegans. Yeah. <laughs> but you moved on very quickly because you were offered roles, I know, with a number of newspapers. Yeah, I moved on quickly. I moved, I moved very quickly to... I wrote a long letter to Celine mm. saying I was deeply sorry and I hope she was okay. The person who the, the, pitched the my idea. My vegan tormentor, as yeah. the male on yeah. Sunday described her. And we met up and had a very fruitful conversation. Because as someone in the like food world, fruit, yeah, I think it's very important, actually, that she and I can have a job of educating people. I think there's many virtues for eating less meat. And I think that if, if we promoted the story and created noise around it, you know, I, don't, I think there's belligerence on all sides. Mm. You know, I think that I think meat eaters can learn a thing or two about plant-based food. Mm. I think people who eat plant-based food can learn a thing or two about the importance of the balance of protein. Hello, today I'm uh, very uh, pleased to be talking to Shakira Martin, uh, the president of the NUS, the National Union of Students, before she steps down having uh, had the job for two terms. And I'm talking to her in the uh, Goring Hotel in central London. Shakira, welcome. Uh, would you like to just start by setting out what you did to become the president of the UK NUS? Well, thank you very much for having me. And just for clarification, I'm not stepping down. Theresa may step down. I'm coming to the end of my term. That's really important to remember. Very good. <laughs> I made it. She didn't. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, so I often say it was adversity, not university, that got me here. Um, as many people probably can tell or who've seen me, I'm not the traditional type of NUS president, nor do I want to be. Um, and I got here through my further education college. Um, and how did you manage having your baby and studying? What, how did you juggle that? You just do. I don't know. Like, where I come from, this is normal. So it's the, there's no option. If you want to get out of the struggle, if you want to break that cycle of deprivation, you're going to have to take that big jump. So not saying that it was easy. There was times that I couldn't go to my course because I didn't have childcare or I was late on assignment. So I'm not going to say it was easy, but I knew that it was going to be hard, but no, had no option but to go through that to bring my child out of, you know, that cycle of deprivation. So, we're now going to take the happiness survey. Okay. And this survey is about how happy you are at work. As we go to engaging work. I can't even believe NUS approved me to do this. They're, they're very brave, isn't it? Then we click on the survey. So, first we pick a language we want to do the survey. And the survey is done in 130 countries around the world. Okay. So, we'll click that and we'll press English. So, this is the first question. If you want to read out the question and then yeah. tell me what your answer is. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? So, what have you said? I've said three. You've said, uh, tell me why it's a three. I think because you're, you're representing so many people that maybe there are people that 
feel like they could reward you or praise you or say thank you, but you're so far from, from them that you're not being able to hear it. Also, it's kind of like in this kind of industry, it's not really sexy to kind of be praised for the good work that you're doing in representing your members. So I just think there's a culture around being properly rewarded for your work. If you ask me this in two, two weeks' time, once I know what job I get, the, the, the answer might be different. What about uh, what you're paid to be president of the NUS? Do you think that's fair? No, it's not, it's not appropriate. It's, not, it's appropriate for maybe a 21-year-old with no commitment. It's not appropriate. If anybody can be NUS president, there's a potential that there could be a single mother with five children. I don't know, that might be too with um, uh, the world famous Tom Parker Bowles, <laughs> food writer, food critic, food everything. Uh, Tom, it's great to have you with us. How would you describe uh, your working life, what you do and what you have done? My working life is, is a particularly, uh, I'd say, blessed without sounding too, uh, too saccharine. Um, I do the thing I love. I love eating, I love food, I love writing, um, and by some miracle I managed to combine a career of, of, of doing all of that. I get to eat, I get to meet producers, I get to go to restaurants, I get to talk about food, I get involved in every aspect of food, and it, you know, food makes me very, very happy. So everybody will want to know. So um, what advice would you give anybody wanting to go into journalism, particularly food journalism? Well, it's changed a lot since, journalism's changed a lot since I've started, you know, 20 years ago. I think you have to have, the most important thing I find, and, and the, the, the writers are, you have to have a voice, you have to really uh, take a view, don't sit on the fence, you know, you don't have to be controversial, you don't have to be wacky and mad, but you have to have a voice, you have to have a sense of the writer's personality within the writing. That's very important, you know, cultivate a voice, but it comes naturally, but, and secondly, Specialise. You can't just say, "I want to be a journalist." You know, you could be a political journalist, a business journalist, a food journalist, uh, whatever it is. Specialise, and you know, this is what I find: the older I get, it sounds a bit like Socrates, but not quite as deep. But the older I get, the less I know. I know, if sort of mean, you know, there's a certain point when you're young, you think you know everything, and the older I get, I think, God, and I collect food books, and I've been obsessed with with old books and all the rest of it, but. Even on the subjects I think I know a little bit about, I just realised I know so little about it. And I think you have to accept that. So I'm always learning, always, always learning. And a voice, a strong individual voice. And it's that thing my dad always said, you know, hard work. You do have to work hard. It doesn't, nothing, you know, despite all the accidents and of birth I've had, uh, the education, by pure accident of birth, great education, great the rest of it, you have to work hard. And that's the idea that people, you know, people, oh, I want to become a chef, for example, or... Um, but I just want to be Gordon Ramsay. Well, he's done, like every other chef, 30 hard years in the kitchen of no life. Um, hard work, nothing, I don't think anything comes about hard work. I think it's very important that you work hard. And, and uh, I'm quite happy that I didn't have a trust fund or something. I'd probably be dead if I had a trust fund. <laughs> <laughs> God knows what I've got up to. But no, I think work is, is important. But you, yeah, you have to love your work. But yeah, any advice, I think it's tough out there. Because everyone now, with the internet and with blogs and the rest of it, Everyone can have a view. That's fantastic. What I do find is there's a hell of a lot of good bloggers out there, but they haven't ever had an editor. You know, they've never been like, no, you know, when they're cutting out all the bits that, no, two over the top, blah, 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 and write, you know, write into length. If someone says, can I have 1,500 words, please? Don't send in 3,000 words. Send in 1,500. You know, write to length. 
try and stick to a deadline as well. Um, so what we're going to do now, Tom, is we're going to take the Engaging Works Workplace Happiness uh, Survey. And at the end of this, what it will do is compare you to people like you, if there is anybody I'm like sure you, Tom. Well. Um, <laughs> and what it will do is it will tell you how happy you are at work. Fantastic. And it will compare you to others. And then if there are any areas where you're less happy, it will start to identify those. Fantastic. Okay. So um, the first thing we do when we get to the workplace uh, happiness uh, survey screen on Engaging Works is we need to pick a language to take the survey in. I would... I. We'd probably go for English. I would what do you think? definitely go for English. Yeah. So if you want to press the button that says English. And now we go through a series of, um, in total, 26 questions, but 18 yeah. questions. So the first one is, do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? Absolutely, yes. So I'd go for a 10 there, would I? You're going for a 10. And have you always felt well rewarded for your work? I felt I've been overcompensated at times um, f for my work. and. Have you ever felt like giving money back then? Uh, I would prefer to give money back in, in, in the form of charity rather than giving it back to my employer. Okay, so, press that. so uh, the second question, do you feel recognised when you do something well? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I mean, it's all, it's going to look very happy all this, so, isn't it? So what are, you, what are you going for? You're going for a 10? 10, yeah. I, um, and I've, how do you feel recognised? Do people write nice notes to you saying we yes. love your column? Uh, well, more the, my editor will say that's a good piece, you know. Mm. And also, when it's, you do have a professional responsibility to do things well. Of course, below the line on the, on the mail, you know, it's, it's, it's the Wild West out there. There's nothing, nothing that anyone can say that would offend me anymore. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but that, yeah, I do. When I know when it's, you know, if it's, I, I, I try never to be, Obviously, it have to be bad, but there are some columns you think, mm, that was a bit boring compared to the other ones. But when I do do something, when well, I think this is good... People tell you. People tell you, and that doesn't, you know, doesn't help egos and all the rest of it. But, but yeah, I feel that, you know, I sometimes say, this is a good piece. Um, and, yeah, people do say, and, and there, there is a thing, sometimes you, you send some copy and people don't get back, and I don't mind that either, really. But, yeah, I do feel that when it is done, I think it's a good piece. People you said friends and family. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.